This is Quotations, a podcast about words, written and spoken throughout history. If you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, we shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. No matter where you're from, your dreams are valid. The Pale Blue Dot, the only home we've ever known. Hello and welcome to Quotations. I'm Matthew Monroe. Here's today's quote, and it's a little bit long. Rowing is, in a number of ways, a sport of fundamental paradoxes. For one thing, an eight-oared racing shell, powered by unusually large and physically powerful men or women, is commanded, controlled, and directed by the smallest and least powerful person in the boat. The coxswain, nowadays often a female in an otherwise male crew, must have the force of character to look men or women twice his or her size in the face, bark orders at them, and be confident that the leviathans will respond instantly and unquestioningly to those orders. It is perhaps the most incongruous relationship in sports. Another paradox lies in the physics of the sport. The object of the endeavor is, of course, to make the boat move through the water as quickly as possible. But the faster the boat goes, the harder it is to row well. The enormously complicated sequence of movements, each of which an oarsman must execute with exquisite precision, becomes exponentially more difficult to perform as the stroke rate increases. Rowing at a beat of 36 is vastly more challenging than rowing at a beat of 26. As the tempo accelerates, the penalty for a miscue, an oar touching the water a fraction of a second too early or too late, for instance, becomes ever more severe, the opportunity for disaster ever greater. At the same time, the exertion required to maintain a high rate makes the physical pain all the more devastating, and therefore the likelihood of a miscue greater. In this sense, speed is both the rower's ultimate goal and also his greatest foe. Put another way, beautiful and effective rowing often means painful rowing. An unnamed coach is reputed to have said bluntly, rowing is like a beautiful duck. On the surface, it is all grace, but underneath, the bastard's paddling like mad. But the greatest paradox of the sport has to do with the psychological makeup of the people who pull the oars. Great oarsmen and oarswomen who are necessarily made of conflicting stuff. Of oil and water. Fire and earth. On the one hand, they must possess enormous self-confidence, strong egos, and titanic willpower. They must be almost immune to frustration. Nobody who does not believe deeply in himself or herself, in his or her ability to endure hardship and to prevail over adversity, is likely to even attempt something as audacious as competitive rowing at the highest levels. The sport offers so many opportunities for suffering and so few opportunities for glory that only the most tenaciously self-reliant and self-motivated are likely to succeed at it. And yet at the same time, and this is key, no other sport demands and rewards the complete abandonment of the self the way that rowing does. Great crews may have men or women of exceptional talent or strength. They may have an outstanding coxswain or stroke oars or bowman, but there are no stars. The team effort, the perfectly synchronized flow of muscle, oars, boat, and water, the single, whole, unified, and beautiful symphony that a crew in motion becomes is all that matters, not the individual, not the self. And that is the author Daniel Brown. Daniel Brown was born in 1951, still alive today. He's the author of four books, Facing the Mountain, about Japanese heroes of World War II, The Indifferent Stars Above, which is about the Donner Party, Under a Flaming Sky, which is about the Hinkley Firestorm of 1854, and the origin of today's quote, naturally, The Boys in the Boat which is about the 1936 men's crew team from the University of Washington that won gold at the 1936 Olympics. 
Now, rowing is a, a fascinating sport. And my interest, like a lot of people, I think, in the United States where, where rowing isn't as, as big a thing, but for a very few small enclaves of schools along a river. Now, if you went to Harvard or Boston University or um, one of those schools, then maybe you're more familiar with it and it's more exciting. But for the most part, it's it's not a particularly well-known or well-followed sport in the United States. For example, ask yourself right now, do you know who the number one team is in the country? Probably not. I don't. And that's okay. But it's an interesting sport if you start to get into it, as many sports are. Almost every competitive event has a certain level of interest. If you like competition, there are nuances and athleticisms that are very much worth appreciating. And my interest, like a lot of people's, I think, began with uh, with CrossFit, with the, with the workout program called CrossFit. And they really enjoy the rowing machine. And the rowing machine is is a brutal, brutal device. And you can set the resistance, you can really develop some skills and some strength and stamina on that thing. And the two-kilometer indoor race is the rowing gold standard. And if you've never rowed 2,000 meters on a rowing machine, it is a painful exercise. And now it's only six to eight nine minutes in duration, but it is exhausting. It involves a lot of technique. It involves a lot of finesse. And probably the worst part of the indoor rowing machine is that your performance is right there in front of you. There's a little screen and it has your pace. It has your time. You can set up a, a little ghost boat. That's your pace boat that there's a little boat icon at the bottom and that pace boat goes at that pace no matter what pace you go at and you race that boat and it is exhausting and if you've never felt the slow accumulation of lactic acid in your muscles as your heart thumps out of your chest and your breathing rate you struggle to control your breathing rate Give an indoor rower a try for a little 2k row well I wouldn't start with that maybe go for a 500 meter row and you'll see that it is it's exhausting and it really gives you an appreciation and of of at the very least the muscular endurance and cardiovascular stamina that a person has to have in order to compete in rowing at all and understand this that no matter how hard an indoor rower is it's not 100% analogous to outdoor rowing right because you're not actually on the water so you don't have wind and waves the consequences of being slightly out of time and you also are alone, right? There is not a two-person or a four-person or an eight-person indoor rower that I'm aware of. There probably is somewhere. I'm sure somebody's made one. But the consequences for not being in perfect synchronicity with your teammates don't exist on an indoor rower. There's a, there's a term in rowing called catching a crab. And if you've ever watched oarsmen in a boat, you've seen them do what's called feathering the oar. So the oar is this big flat surface area that when dipped into the water and pulled creates the the momentum to move the uh, to move the boat forward and when you bring that oar out of the water just as it acted to pull on the water if there's wind and there is because you are moving that wind will catch that oar and it will then retard your your progress and so you have the 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 technique is as the after the oar exits the water is to turn your hands so that the oar is parallel to the water's surface. The idea being there that the wind can't catch it 
and slow the boat down, and then to reorient it vertically just as you enter the water for the next stroke. So it's a series of the, the oar perpendicular to the water during the stroke, and then parallel to the water as you return to the catch position to start the next stroke. And this takes practice and this takes timing. This is also not something you have to do on an indoor rower. On an indoor rower, you just grab a hold of that handle and pull like mad and start making forward progress on your, on your distance. Another difference between indoor and outdoor rowing is that when you're outdoors, your opponent is visible. So you can actually see that person. And I talked about the little ghost boat on the screen for the indoor rower. Not quite the same, but you can see that. If you want to watch some wonderful video footage and really get wrapped into the sport and the, and the competition, there's probably no better competition to watch than the Oxford-Cambridge annual race on the Thames, which is a race that dates back to 1829 and is fascinating to watch. And it hasn't always been annually, so it's not as if we're coming up on the 200th anniversary of this thing. But I believe when, around the time that this this episode comes out, the race is or will have taken place. And if not, go back and look at some of the old ones, because there are some wonderful, wonderful races between these two schools. Storied history, beautiful river, and just the ultimate manifestation of human athleticism in, in both coordination and timing. I mean, you talk about team sports and the coordination that's required for a basketball team to execute a perfect um, final seconds jump shot to win a game, or a football team that is able to, in concert, get 11 people to do exactly what needs to be done to complete a wonderful pass for a touchdown. And that's impressive. None of them hold a candle to the level of teamwork and coordination that is required on a boat. Millimeters, microseconds make all the difference in the sport, and you can see it as they move. Your oar needs to be in a certain spot at a certain point in time, and it needs to be coordinated with seven other people in that boat in order to make the boat go. And if it's not, if you're off in time, if you're off in space, it doesn't work. The boat doesn't go. The frustration and angst and all the things that go along, the human factors that come into the rowing, sport of rowing, are manifest if you're not in the right place at the right time. And I talked about catching a crab. You know, you catch a crab, you can tip the whole boat. You catch that, it, when, if you feather that oar and it makes contact with the water, it's called catching a crab. It will jerk that oar right out of your hands and it can cause the whole boat to tip over, not to mention the handle will smack you right in the chest, which is not fun. But that's what's required. And so it's this, it's this ultimate coordination of muscle, nerve, sinew, all the things that the author talks about in the quote. And it's fascinating to watch. It is an enthralling exhibition of strength and stamina and teamwork. And it's a three-legged stool. You have to have all three. You have to be strong. And if you ever see rowers, they're these big, tall, usually you know six, three plus... 250 pound type type rowers they're they're wickedly strong and they have massive stamina i mean these races go for minutes on end and it's it's minutes straight of rowing and if you've never tried in the quote the author mentions that rowing at a tempo of 36 is much harder than rowing at a tempo of 32 or excuse me of 26 so 36 versus 26 if you've never been on an indoor rower i encourage you to get on an indoor rower and and change the screen so that you can see your stroke rate and it will tell you what your stroke rate is. And I encourage you to try, just just go to a 26. Just do 26. You'll see it. It's 26. And what he's talking about is strokes per minute. So you're talking about a stroke every just more than two seconds. Then step that rate up and get to a rate of 36. And that's a stroke, uh, that's a, 
a stroke rate of a stroke less than every two seconds. And you'll feel the difference immediately. The lungs burning, the, the legs burning, the heart pounding out of your chest, and try to maintain that 36 for any length of time. And then go watch the rowers that do these races. Go watch Oxford and Cambridge and watch, watch the stroke rate on the bottom of the screen as they count them out. And you'll see that they maintain stroke rates of 36 or more for minutes on end, especially at the end of the race when it's time to sprint towards the finish. You'll see them get their stroke rates up closer to 40. And that pace with eight people, that's why you see as soon as that boat crosses, as soon as the bow of that boat crosses the finish line, people collapse onto their oars because it is absolutely one of the most exhausting physical activities that you can participate in. And the book is great because it's one of those books that is is just excellently written. It is truly a can't-put-it-down kind of book. Again, it's called The Boys in the Boat, and it is just phenomenal. And I was reminded of just how good the writing is in researching for this episode. And it it said to me that I need to go grab those other three books as soon as possible. And it's exactly what I plan to do. I mean, they're already... Um, on my list, my short list of, of books to read because Daniel Brown is a gifted author and the book is phenomenal. And it's one of those books that once you pick it up and start going, it's very hard to want to put it down. And adding to the book, of course, is the backstory of how they arrived there. And it's the story of all the, all the oarsmen and the coxswain of the boat from the University of Washington and the struggle that they had to get to the 1936 Olympics in Berlin, which the 1936 Olympics, for those not familiar, came as Hitler attempted to highlight Aryan superiority. And he was coming into power in Germany. World War II had not yet started, but it was it would within the next half a decade. And this was meant to be, this was Hitler's opportunity to highlight the superiority of the Aryan race. He had intended to take any and all medals he could possibly get, including, and we'll get to this in a moment, cheating in order to do so, or at least allegedly cheating. Now, you may not be familiar with the men's crew of eight that won the gold medal in rowing, but you've probably heard of another name, another story from the 1936 Olympics, and it's about a, a, a man named Jesse Owens. And Owens is a black American, or was a black American, who, black American athlete who won four gold medals in track and field at the 1936 Olympics, and he did it right in front of Hitler and Goebbels and Goring and all the other Nazi leaders who were at those Olympics. So here you have Adolf Hitler attempting to highlight for the world Aryan superiority and watching his athletes get outrun by somebody he considered to be less than human. There's a certain poetic justice to that, and it was wonderful to read that story while researching for this one, and see just how, you can imagine just how infuriating that would be. And the story of the hurdles and the setbacks for the Americans from the University of Washington to reach the 1936 Olympics and win is incredible. It is It alone is worth the read. But the author does an, a fantastic job, as, as any author who is writing about a specific event does, in, in building the tension and excitement, and the deck seems to be stacked against the team, and yet they, they do. Uh, they do win. Now, this is also a 2,000-meter race. This was the race at the time at the Olympics. And German leadership, remember I talked about potentially cheating to win. The German leadership attempted to stack the deck for their for their team. 
So in racing, if you're familiar with any kind of race, the inside track is the quickest usually on a track because it is, uh, and it, it you start off with an automatic lead in most races. If you start around the corners of a track, the the person on the inside position has the technically shortest amount of track to cover. Um, and the way they stagger the start is they put people in the outside lanes further forward at the start. So you can literally see all of your competition if you're on that inside track and catch them one at a time. Well, in rowing too, remember this is an outdoor sport subject to the wind and the waves and the weather. And there is a there are more coveted positions for the boats than others. Now, there was a set of qualifying rounds leading into the final, and the American boat was the fastest in the qualifying round by a good bit. They, therefore, should have had the most advantageous position for the finals, which would have been lane one. And lane one, however, again, the, the Germans the Germans and Italians, who did not finish as well as the Americans in the qualifying round, were actually placed in lane one and lane two, while the Americans, who had the best time in the qualifying round, were placed on the very outside lane, lane five. And the result, of course, is that they had to overcome that much more adversity. So again, I say, and, and nobody that I read went so far as to say that the Germans cheated, but how else do the German and Italian... Axis powers end up in the two most preferential lanes, advantageous lanes, while the Americans placed in the in the most challenging lane, the windiest lane, the waviest lane, the most difficult lane to row. And you can go on YouTube and you can watch a video of this race, and it's quite fascinating to watch. It's in black and white, and this is one of the first, this was the first Olympics, rather, that were televised. And so we have a video of the starts, a uh, video of the start of the race, and you can see how low in the water these boats sit. You can see why if somebody were to catch a crab, to drag an oar, to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, how easily these boats would swamp. There's not a lot to them. They're called a shell for a reason. They're a very, very thin material. You want them to be very lightweight, and you want them to cut through the water very quickly. So they're very narrow, and they're, they're not the most seaworthy craft. But go look it up. If you go online and look up, the video is called Berlin 1936 Rowing 8. Berlin 1936 rowing eight and it's a video where you can see the start and then it'll also transition to the finish never mind the music it's a little bit strange but you can see from the start that it's not a glassy surface right it's not this pristine indoor calm environment it's windy the weather is gross and there's waves all over and you can see that in the times of the finishers but there were I think I said earlier that there were five boats. There were actually six. So six teams in the in the race. The U.S., Italy, Germany, Great Britain, Hungary, and Switzerland. So the U.S. was on the very outside in the wind and the waves, while the Germans and the Italians enjoyed the inside positions. And it was so windy and so loud at the start that they didn't hear the starter starter's call. And so the U.S. team started about a half a boat length behind everybody else because it wasn't until the coxswain, who's the only person, by the way, facing forward. Everybody else is facing towards the stern of the boat. So all eight of the rowers are facing where you came from, not where you're going. The only person facing forward is the coxswain. So the coxswain can see the other boats. They can see where they are in proximity to the other boats. They can also see the finish line. All the oarsmen can see. The one at the most stern of the boat can see the water behind them. And they can see other boats if they come into their field of view, meaning that their team is far enough ahead that those boats are in their field of view. But everybody else essentially can only see the rower in front of them, and they're close to one another. 
So you have eight rowers, none of whom can see where they're going, none of whom can see where the competition is. All they can see is the oarsmen in front of them. And they row, and they row, and they row, and they row. And it comes down to this wonderful photo finish where the United States finishes with a 625.4, 6 minutes, 25 25.4 seconds. And I'll tell you, as somebody who's rowed indoors, you know, a sub-7-minute 2,000 meter is is pretty pretty solid. And this is a team of eight that rowed this boat. And these are top athletes, and they rowed it in a 625. There are people that can row an indoor 625. And I'll tell you, the world record today for the men's eight is five minutes and 18 seconds. And that is with a tailwind and in warmer water. Warmer water boats go faster. Look up the physics. It's fascinating stuff. But five minutes and 18 seconds to row 2,000 meters. And of course, athletes today are stronger and faster and more accomplished than, you know, those in 1936 in nearly every sport. But you can see that's more than a minute difference. And that's a lot. That's a lot of difference. The fascinating part of this race is that while the Americans finished in six minutes, 25.4 seconds, the Italians finished second with six minutes and 26 seconds even, and the Germans at six minutes, 26.4 seconds. So that is one second of difference between the top three boats over the course of 2,000 meters. So let's go back to the quote briefly here. And again, it's a little bit of a long quote, but I think it's worth a listen. And I want you to listen for the three paradoxes that the author talks about in the quote. So here it is again, the quote from Daniel Brown on the paradoxes of rowing. Rowing is, in a number of ways, a sport of fundamental paradoxes. For one thing, an eight-oared racing shell, powered by unusually large and physically powerful men or women, is commanded, controlled, and directed by the smallest and least powerful person in the boat. The coxswain, nowadays often a female in an otherwise male crew, must have the force of character to look men or women twice his or her size in the face, bark orders at them, and be confident that the leviathans will respond instantly and unquestioningly to those orders. It is perhaps the most incongruous relationship in sports. Another paradox lies in the physics of the sport. The object of the endeavor is, of course, to make the boat move through the water as quickly as possible. But the faster the boat goes, the harder it is to row well. The enormously complicated sequence of movements, each of which an oarsman must execute with exquisite precision, becomes exponentially more difficult to perform as the stroke rate increases. Rowing at a beat of 36 is vastly more challenging than rowing at a beat of 26. As the tempo accelerates, the penalty for a miscue an oar touching the water a fraction of a second too early or too late, for instance, becomes ever more severe, the opportunity for disaster ever greater. At the same time, the exertion required to maintain a high rate makes the physical pain all the more devastating, and therefore the likelihood of a miscue greater. In this sense, speed is both the rower's ultimate goal and also his greatest foe. Put another way, beautiful and effective rowing often means painful rowing. An unnamed coach is reputed to have said bluntly, rowing is like a beautiful duck. On the surface, it is all grace, but underneath, the bastard's paddling like mad. But the greatest paradox of the sport has to do with the psychological makeup of the people who pull the oars. Great oarsmen and oarswomen who are necessarily made of conflicting stuff, of oil and water, fire and earth. On the one hand, they must possess enormous self-confidence, strong egos, and titanic willpower. They must be almost immune to frustration. Nobody who does not believe deeply in himself or herself in his or her ability to endure hardship and to prevail over adversity, is likely to even attempt something as audacious as competitive rowing at the highest levels. 
The sport offers so many opportunities for suffering and so few opportunities for glory that only the most tenaciously self-reliant and self-motivated are likely to succeed at it. And yet at the same time, and this is key, no other sport demands and rewards the complete abandonment of the self the way that rowing does. Great crews may have men or women of exceptional talent or strength. They may have an outstanding coxswain or stroke oars or bowman, but there are no stars. The team effort, the perfectly synchronized flow of muscle, oars, boat, and water, the single, whole, unified, and beautiful symphony that a crew in motion becomes is all that matters, not the individual, not the self. So what were the paradoxes there? We heard him talk about, I said, listen for three. And there are three. They are one, command and control, two, physics, and three, psychology. Right? So those are the three, command and control, physics, and psychology. The command and control piece, that's the small versus large argument he's talking about. These large behemoths in the boat are, and you put the heaviest individuals towards the stern of the boat, right? You put the heaviest people towards the stern of the boat because they force that part of the boat to sit a little lower in the water, which raises the bow of the boat, which is the forward end towards the finish line, up a little bit out of the water. And that helps, right? So you stack your team from heaviest to lightest, bow to stern, so as to create a slight up, uh, bow up position for the boat. But they're controlled by this tiny person, right? This small person. You want that person at the very, very back to be as small as possible. And if you ever see the coxswains in the old videos, you can see this in that 1936 video that I mentioned earlier. The coxswains are sitting up very high, right? They're sitting on a little stoop or a little bench, and they're sitting up high, almost eye to eye with the, the rowers. Well, if you look today and look at the modern boats, those coxswains are hunkered down in the boat as low as they can possibly get. You want that coxswain to be as light as possible because they contribute nothing to the actual propulsion of the boat. So they're just extra weight. So you want them to be as light and as small as possible so they can get down low out of the wind to create less resistance and so that they can slow the boat down as little as possible by forcing the oarsmen to move more weight through the water. So there's a paradox there. It's the, the, the smallest person on the boat controlling the largest team on the boat. And there is a trust relationship there that has to exist. And developing that is hard. And it's one of the paradoxes of the sport of rowing. The second is physics. And this is where he talks about the speed component, right? You want to go fast. In order to go fast, you must be coordinated. To go faster, you must be more coordinated, more synchronized, work together better as a team. The margins for error shrink the faster you go. And so if you're not coordinated and in sync, speed will kill you. Speed will wreck your, wreck your day, ruin your time, and cause you to lose. So that's the second one. And the psychology is the third, right? It is a team of individuals, right? But I've talked about this the entire episode. I've beat this drum over and over, that this is the ultimate team sport. Microseconds, millimeters make all the difference in this sport. And yet the individuals are exactly that. They are individual characters who have different life stories. And that's part of what makes this book so magical is that as the author weaves the story leading up to the actual race, which again, the race is six minutes and 25 seconds. And yet, how do I get a 300 page book out of this? Well, you go back and you tell the story of the individuals that make up the boat. And you see that they all come from different backgrounds, different life stories, different experiences, different levels of athleticism but they work and they train. And as much as they're working and training their legs and their lungs, they're also training their cooperation. They're training their leadership. They're training their followership. They're training their trust. 
And so you take this team of individuals and you realize that the strongest individuals sometimes need to let go of that strength in order to be a team player. And some of those quieter individuals need to be louder in order to be a part of that team. And there's a couple of quotes, a couple of micro quotes in the midst of this larger quote that I think are interesting. And the author, Daniel Brown, mentions being immune to frustration. And this is something that is is incredibly difficult, right? Again, we talked about millimeters and microseconds. And you can imagine that as the team is going along, that person who misses their, who doesn't feather their oar quite right and catches the top of a wave with that oar and throws the whole boat out of rhythm, it takes time to get that boat back into rhythm. You can imagine the frustration that we must build. You were doing your part, right? You're the you're the number one, you're the bowman, right? You're the one way, way, way at the bow of the boat. And you're you're paddling well, you're following. There's nobody behind you. All you have to do is follow the seven people that you see in front of you. Stay in time with them. And you do you do that well. And then you're the stroke oarsman who's the most aft oarsman. He's the one that everybody can see. And so that individual is the one that everybody follows. Their rhythm becomes the rhythm of the boat. They're also the one closest to the coxswain. So they can hear what the coxswain is calling, and their body transmits what the coxswain is calling to the rest of the team. Well, those individuals are separated by 10, 12 feet, maybe more. Um, And somebody in that stack of eight people gets out of rhythm and screws things up. You can imagine the frustration that would elicit from the team. But you have to be, as the author says, immune to that frustration. There's a lesson there. Be immune to frustration. It's very hard to do. But it's a lesson. It's something that we should all take away. And then the very end of the quote, it kind of speaks for itself, and I'm sure you picked up on it the same way that I did. He ends with, they have no stars. You simply cannot win an eights race alone. You can't. There's no way in a boat full of eight people plus a cox and nine people that you can win an eights race alone. And even seven of eight can't win the race alone. And again, I'm not including the coxswain because they're not propelling the boat, but even seven of those eight in perfect synchronicity and harmony can't win. All eight have to pull together, have to move together, have to flow together. I mean, there are all kinds of analogies that you can make to what a boat is. You know, you heard the duck analogy in the quote. There are other ways to look at it. It, it. As with most extremely difficult things done extremely well, it looks simple. I assure you that it is not. Even the best indoor rower, if they've never been on a boat, you could put them on a single skull out in the water and tell them to row, and they'd be in the water before they got very far. And that's because it's completely different. You talk about slight movements left or right in the boat to port or starboard can throw the whole balance of the boat out. You want that boat stable and smooth to cut through the water. And so all of these things come together to make If I haven't sold you on the idea of reading or watching a few rowing races, I don't think that I can, because it's that interesting. And perhaps the largest takeaway is the final sentence, which is simply, not the individual, not the self. And that is the a lesson that I think is far more applicable than the individualistic inverse that we're taught through most of life, which is... Got to look out for number one. Got to take care of yourself. Got to do what's best for you. All of those phrases. Sometimes you got to do what's best for the boat. Sometimes we all have to do what's best for the boat. And that's also part of the reason why this book and this quote is so educational is because it goes so counter to so many things that we've learned in life. 
So remember, as we close today, that sometimes we do need to do what's best for the boat, that we need to cooperate, we need to work together, we need to coordinate. We need to sacrifice small things of ourselves for others. Because as Daniel Brown would say, it's not the individual, not the self, that wins the race. Until next time, I'm Matthew Monroe. This is Quotations, and thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please subscribe in your favorite podcast app, or visit me at quotationspod.com to download and listen. Please also take a moment to recommend the podcast to a friend. That's a huge help. You can tweet at me at quotationspod. Send me an email to quotationspod at gmail.com. Find me on Instagram at quotationspod, or join the conversation on Facebook at quotationspod. I look forward to hearing from you, welcome your feedback, and thanks as always for listening.